everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, I have the great honor to introduce this wonderful book to you. It's called Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Uh, it is written by Zena Hitz, who is a tutor uh, in the Great Books Program at St. John's College in Anna Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, she has a PhD in Asian philosophy from Princeton and studies and teaches across the liberal arts. Uh, in this book, Zena very artfully explains the ideals of a commitment to intellectual life. And I think it inspires some fundamental rethinking of our current socio-political discourse and academic teaching. Uh, I felt compelled to uh, uh, reach out to her and ask her to be on the show. So Zena, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks so much, Tiger. Uh, you know, I, uh, um, our listeners might not be able to see this, but uh, uh, if they're on YouTube, they can see this. I'm, I'm wearing this shirt that I think is, is considered most intellectual that I can find from my, from my wardrobe. Uh, so this is off to a great start. Uh, <laughs> That's right. You've got to start at the surface. You know, you've got to look like an intellectual. You need the right exactly. glasses, the right shirts. Exactly. You know, the right kind of car. I mean, it's a lifestyle. It's not just, uh, yeah. So, so I think that may be where we can start. How do you define intellectualism, being intellectual, intellectual lifestyle? How do you define it? So I, I don't use the term intellectualism much because it's not um, the way I think about it. Intellectual life is part of being a human being. So I, I think it's a set of activities which... Uh, most, many, nearly everyone is capable of and that benefits everyone. And it's practices of thinking, reflecting, contemplating, seeking to understand. Uh, and the thing that I think might be distinctive about my view as opposed to what you might be more familiar is, I think these activities have to be undertaken for their own sake. So it's not necessarily about learning for the sake of gaining a skill that can uh, advance uh, you in the world or advance the world for you. Um, it's ways of thinking and pondering uh, and reflecting that matter just because of what they are. They're, they're part of being human. Uh, so, so part of what the book is really meant to do is to distinguish this activity so that almost anyone, academic or non-academic, can recognize it in themselves. And also to explain a bit why it's valuable and why it's important and why um, our educational institutions ideally should be supporting it. But even if they don't, we have to find our own ways to support it. So it's, it's uh, yeah, it's part of being a human being, part of being a happy, uh, full uh, uh, human, living a human life. I guess what would be some of the traits or characteristics you might look for if you say someone is living an intellectual lifestyle? What are some of the preconditions for this kind of intellectual pursuit? Do you have well, any? Yeah, I do. So there, uh, I do have some. Uh, but I want to be clear, if, even if I say intellectual lifestyle, that makes it sound, so there's, maybe I could make a distinction. Uh, on the one hand, there's the intellectual activity that I think every human being is capable of and to some extent called to. I think we're all meant to reflect and think and contemplate for, their, for its own sake. Now, there's also a people who we call intellectuals or people who the way the term I might use would be to say they have an intellectual vocation. 
Now they could be academics, they could be journalists or critics, they could, um, they could lead an intellectual vocation in the midst of another kind of job, so it doesn't have to be a career. Uh, but it's something which it, it constitutes in some way the center of your life in a way that it might not for other people. So, so that's one thing to say, but you're really looking for, I can tell, uh, what are its distinctive features. So here's some features that I think are important. One is that intellectual life is, uh, what I say, is with, it's a form of the inner life. So it's something which, it's not exclusive to solitude, but it's appropriate to solitude, to withdrawal from social competition and social life. Uh, it could be temporary withdrawal, but some kind of withdrawal. So, you know, you're sitting in your corner reading a book. That's classic withdrawal, and, and you're cultivating inwardness. You're, you're spending some time inside your own mind with the author thinking about things. So those are, the, in a way, the central features, withdrawal and inwardness. And then I also think that intellectual activity uh, gets us in touch with our dignity as human beings, uh, and that all of those things can allow us to connect with other human beings, to make connections, forms of communion, forms of friendship uh, that are more profound than we might in other walks of life. So, so you withdraw from competitive aspects of the social world, you nurture some part of yourself, you get in touch with your own dignity, and then you have a mode of connecting with others at a deep level, at a, matter, at a level that really matters and not just, um, you know, having a good time or trying to advance yourself in the world, which is a lot of what our social life is uh, when we're young or when we're old. I think this interview is already getting more challenging than I imagined because now we have to discuss what it means to be uh, living an intellectual life or, or engaging okay. in intellectual activities without actually having to, to pin them down by, by specific definitions or, or terms, uh, which is exactly the point of this book. And, and <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't, I'll, I'll explain this. This is some, a feature of the book, which is deliberate. It's not just because I'm a sloppy thinker, even though I am a bit. Uh, I want, I think that what an intellectual life is, what that means for an individual has got to be worked out by you. Uh, it's got to be worked out by the reader. So I offer some thoughts. I offer some things to think about, but it's meant to help you figure out for yourself what an intellectual life is. Because I, I don't think that this kind of thing can be managed at the details. I'm not, a, I'm not a scientist of the intellect. I'm not trying to, or a mathematician, I'm not trying to lay down a definition from which a bunch of consequences follow. I'm inviting you into some reflections that I've had about my, based on my own life and what I've seen in it. And I'm inviting you to join me in that. Uh, so it's, it's in a way, it's, uh, it's not unheard of to write a book like this, but it's a bit unusual. Uh, so I, I, it's deliberate that I don't have strict definitions or um, very, very clear rigid terminology because I think that those can, um, they can uh, offer a kind of pretense as if uh, I've somehow come to some authoritative study of what intellectual life is. Or, or realization of exactly. what it actually means. Exactly. Whereas what have I done? I've, I've lived a certain kind of life and I've thought a lot about it. And I want to share these reflections with people. And those reflections might be a little amorphous. They might be a little open-ended. That's fine because we all have to figure this out for ourselves anyway. Uh, there's, there's no, um, there's no, there's no uh, intellectual engineering uh, that I'm going to, that I'm at the sort of foundation of or impose on people. 
Um, it's just something we do together. So, so why don't we talk a little bit more about your book? I stumbled upon it a couple months ago. It's very interesting because uh, some friends and I, we often send each other articles and book reviews. And um, they sent this article called Mind Stoked Only With Opinions. It's kind of a piece uh, critiquing uh, current college campuses, uh, the environment of social discourse. And I realized that it was a book review more specifically tailored towards this book. And um, I guess we started off the interview by asking you to define the word intellectual, but we haven't really talked about what inspired you to write this book or what specifically some of the themes that you talked about. So why don't we circle back to, to this book? What are some of the things that you wish to highlight or present? The main thing I want to do, so I, I wanted to write the book because uh, I think that intellectual activity of the kind that I was brought up to practice and then I've sort of spent my life trying to pass on to young people is a bit uh, misunderstood and undervalued. Uh, and while I think it should be a central objective of education, it's less and less found in our educational institutions. So that made me concerned that learning for its own sake uh, might become a very marginal practice. That is something that you really only find in rare corners uh, and you know, weird people who you, know, you might meet once in a lifetime might practice it. But most of our culture, uh, as every Princeton undergrad knows, is very achievement oriented. It's about, uh, making your way up the ladder of success, uh, no matter where you've come from. Maybe you've come from a successful background and you want to maintain or improve it. Maybe you come from, uh, you know, real challenges in your upbringing and you want to get up to the next level and bring your family with you. Um, but it's very much a, a money and status driven activity and our educational institutions have uh, have really tried to meet that need, that desire in people. But one of the things that leaves out is uh, what happens when uh, all of your dreams and plans come to nothing? What happens when success becomes impossible? Maybe through some fault of your own or maybe through no fault of your own. I think the past six months have taught all of us something about how contingent uh, and temporary a lot of our social arrangements are and how you could have worked for years on something and watched it through no fault of your own turn to dust. So what do you do then uh, has your education prepared you for that moment? Uh, I think this type of learning for its own sake is really dedicated to that. It's what have I nurtured in my own self, in my own person, in my own mind? What resources do I have that will take me through anything? It'll prepare, I think, I think all this, this type of education, reading, reflecting, literature, philosophy, I think it does help you be more successful. I actually do think that. I don't emphasize that in my book because everyone already says that. And because I think uh, we need people to tell us that success isn't everything. So that when we inevitably lose it, and in one way or another, we inevitably will, we have uh, things that we can draw on. Uh, and for me, uh, my particular brand of intellectual activity is reading and thinking about old books, philosophy, literature, history, and just spending time talking about them with my students or with my friends. Those are my resources uh, and they're part of my career. But if my career turned to dust, I would still have them. I would have the habits of mind and I would have uh, a way of, of handling the world 
that would be resilience and, and strong. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about uh, your current work at St. John's and also your own academic journey? Because uh, th there were a couple of things that um, came to my mind. One is uh, this book is very much uh, also an autobiography about how you narrated through um, your path, your pursuit for intellectual life and uh, your academic career. Uh, and you mentioned how you were at one point dissatisfied with your academic occupation at the moment, and you decided to take a series of transitions. And that, that happened a couple of times throughout your career. And also, you have this distinct title uh, as a tutor uh, at St. John's College. And St. John's College has been called by many as you know, the most contrarian college. Or, or... So <laughs> I would love to hear a little bit more uh, about that as well. Sure. So uh, as I explained in the book, I, I do start from my life because, again, I'm not presenting myself as some kind of expert on intellectual life. I'm just tracing for you my experience and inviting you to reflect on your own. So uh, I, my, my parents uh, were bookworms, amateurs. They loved books and ideas. They still do. They're still around. Um, and uh, that's how I grew up. I grew up with my older brother uh, who taught me how to read. And we read all tons of stuff. We memorized all kinds of facts about animals and geology and all kinds of things. He, my brother was very interested in science. He became a scientist. Uh, and to differentiate myself from him, eventually I decided I had to get into humanities and ended up studying philosophy and classics. Uh, but I was an undergraduate at St. John's, which is a very small liberal arts college. Uh, there's one campus in Maryland and, and one in Santa Fe, in New Mexico. And these campuses are very small, they're 400 people. So, you know, maybe smaller than one of these Princeton colleges, I'm not sure. Um, it's and, like my, my boarding school, it's like a high school almost. Yeah, yeah, see, like. exactly. So um, we, uh, and the, the curriculum is all fixed. It's, um, it's based on great books, uh, mostly from the, uh, or almost all from the Western tradition. Uh, although we sometimes, you know, dabble in other traditions um, and, we read, it's chronologically arranged, and so we read uh, freshman year, the Greeks, and sophomore year, uh, medieval and Renaissance thinkers, and junior year, the Enlightenment thinkers, and then senior year, um, things from the 19th and 20th century. Uh, and we also have mathematics and science uh, that goes along with that. Uh, so we do mathematics and science from a historical perspective also, reading original thinkers and reading original texts. And it's uh, a type of education that's very much directed at the kind of thing that I talk about in the book. So it's reflection for its own sake. There's no, um, our classrooms don't have fixed agendas. They're very much the responsibility of the students. Uh, and the conversation about the book is seen as a kind of end in itself. So uh, there are certain downsides to an education like this. So you don't get uh, a fixed set of knowledge and skills that you might need to advance in a profession. Uh, so, you know, what you, what you get at a, at a normal major and a normal university, we hope, is something like that. That is, you get some, some key terms, some tools, some information, some skills, and then you can go straight into, you know, the next program and then straight into a line of work, whether that's being an economist or being a lawyer or being a um, consultant or being an engineer, what have you. So uh, this type of education doesn't do any of that. Strictly speaking, it prepares you for nothing. And in another way, it prepares you for everything. Uh, it prepares you for life. Uh, it prepares you for a variety of types of experience. 
And it gives you habits of mind and modes of reflection uh, that are enormously valuable in a large variety of circumstances. So I was an undergrad in this program. I fell in love with it. Uh, it was just wonderful transformative experience for me. And there was, of course, I read works of classical philosophy, which I ended up studying in graduate school. Uh, and um, in graduate school, I, I, through some lucky chances, I ended up in very elite programs very early on. Uh, so I studied in Cambridge and then uh, at University of Chicago before coming to Princeton to finish uh, my degree. And uh, so in these elite programs, on the one hand, it was very exciting because I learned my field in a depth and to a degree that I hadn't as an undergrad because we had not had these agendas and we had been more loosey-goosey about the whole thing. So that was very intellectually exciting. And, and I learned a lot of things that I would say were good for their own sake. But it was also an enormously competitive environment. And anyone who's spent a lot of time around academics knows that wherever there can be a status distinction, an academic's going to make it. You know, so there's this, you know, they're, they're very, very um, self-conscious, competitive people. And the, the higher you go up the academic tone pole, the, the more it's like that. Uh, and I, I don't mean to denigrate the people who I was with, because I, for one thing, I was one of them. I was right in there with them, with the competition and, the, and, and being driven for status. And for another thing, there was all kinds of good things thrown in there, mixed in, so that you couldn't really get them apart. I couldn't have learned all the, the things that I learned, and um, I wouldn't have developed as an intellectual in the same way if I'd gone to different places. Uh, on the other hand, it did, in the long term, uh, suck the life out of my, um, out of my life of the, sorry, that doesn't, that's not a good phrase. It sucked the, it sucked the vitality, the, or yeah, the was... vitality, it sucked the zeal out of, out of the life of the mind that I had been living. And it made it on the one hand, a job. And on the other hand, it made it very external you know, based on getting approval, getting a paper in a journal, getting an invitation to a conference, you know, getting a famous scholar to like me or to approve of me, uh, very focused on the outside, focused on the social academic world, so to speak, uh, and my career, rather than on learning and understanding and growing. Uh, which is what I think intellectual life has to always really be about. So anyway, I became very disillusioned, um, not just with research, but also with teaching. I, um, I found myself over time uh, uh, more and more disillusioned with what I call factory style teaching, which is large lecture halls. Um, you know, maybe they have as few as 30 people, but even that's kind of a lot for the kind of work that one might do. And you have to, you, you break everything down to bullet points, you figure out some, uh, some things that you think that the students have to know for them to get a good grade. You set up your assignments in such a way. And so there's this kind of exchange of um, digestible bullet points for uh, grades, you know, B plus or higher grades. Uh, and I once, now every classroom I had had wonderful students who are really alive and wanted to learn. But they tended to be minority, and the, the, the institutions weren't supporting them. They, they were doing what they were doing because of who they were. They weren't, they weren't uh, going after learning because that was what the university was telling them they had to do. 
or encouraging them to do or even supporting them in doing. So I became disillusioned with all that. I, I quit the profession. I joined a monastery, a Catholic religious community in Canada. I was there for three years and had a wonderful time, Madonna House. I, I recommend it to any young person who wants to spend some time just thinking about things, reflecting on their lives. Um, and then uh, I realized I'd gone there thinking I might stay and I realized it wouldn't work because there wasn't the kind of intellectual opportunities I needed. So I realized I needed to leave and around the same time I realized uh, that I would be really happy going back to St. John's where I'd been an undergrad. Uh, and I, um, I can say a bit more about that if you like. So it's, for me, it was uh, from an elite academic perspective, teaching at a small liberal arts college is kind of looked down on, okay? I do too much teaching at St. John's for one thing to produce research, to be a, an active scholar. I do a little bit, but it's not much. I'm not, I don't have the time. Um, so it's a very, it's very much a teaching focused job. Um, and, uh, and it's a little weird. Okay. It's an experimental college from the 1930s. Uh, and it has its own customs and its own reputation, which is sometimes positive and sometimes a little more controversial. Uh, and so it was a difficult, it was difficult in my previous life for me to see it clearly as something that I wanted. But once I'd been out of the profession for a while, I could see that what I really cared about was passing on the habits of mind, the habits of thinking, the habits of reading, um, and independence. You know, uh, at St. John's, we really foster people who teach themselves. You know, you, you pick up a book, it's very difficult. Uh, you just beat your head against it for a while. You find a little outpost of something that makes sense and you start to work your way out. And that's that's what real intellectual work is. It's always difficult. It's never just digesting something that you've already, that someone's already chewed up for you. Um, and so I, I wanted to pass that on to young people like myself. I wanted to help people who like the people I'd been. So I came back to St. John's and um, yeah, I do this wonderful kind of teaching, which which I believe in very, very deeply. And I feel like my students, uh, yeah, they get more out of this type of teaching than I think many undergraduates get out of their institutions. And it's very gratifying for me to be a part of that. I, I wanna come back to that point about uh, factory academic teaching in a bit, but before that, um, I also wanna circle back to this concept you, you talked about uh, in terms of solitude or inwardness, a, a sense of retreat. Uh, when you engage in some kind of intellectual activity. And you, so you left the elitist academic styles. You went to Canada, to the monastery. And uh, I'm particularly struck by this phrase that you used in another podcast. You know, you said, you said carrots are sometimes worse than a stick. Uh, so, and, and you actively sought out the solitude, um, the, the more solitary environment, rather than the inclusion into the elite academic sphere. I think that that's actually profound. It's something someone said to me, in fact, my first year as a graduate student, they said the carrot is worse than the stick. I remember the, I remember the time and the place. This was a person who was older, who was a further along. They were already teaching. And uh, at the time I was in this transition between being this broad liberal artsy person as an undergrad and becoming this high powered professional scholar. So of course I was anxious about what whether I would lose my freedom and my 
independence and my creativity and all these things. And uh, it stuck with me because I think it's really true. We, we, we think a lot about how hard it is to be deprived, that is to be unsuccessful, to not have opportunities, um, to face obstacles. And of course we're right, there's nothing good about those things. But what we forget, I think, especially if we're successful, uh, is that success is, is kind of like a drug. Uh, you get hooked on it and then you wanna keep getting it. And you'll do what, what, you know, you'll do what you have to do to get it. Um, and it becomes the focus of your life rather than whatever it was, the, the field of study or the type of activity for which you wanted to be successful to begin with. So I, I think um, it's something that's been borne out by my experience since. It was part of my experience for sure, that it was very hard to leave that kind of gratification, that kind of prestige, high prestige, high status gratification, um, and, and be a no one in rural Canada. You know, uh, <laughs> I mean, that was very, very hard. Probably the hardest thing I ever did. Um, but I also see people, I see very successful people and it's harder for them sometimes to make a change in their lives because they're, they're it's, so consumed by, it, and by it's it. so comfortable. It's so pleasant and it's so comfortable. Success is very pleasant. It's wonderful. Uh, it makes you feel great uh, at the beginning. And then over years, it stops doing that for you. And I, I think it's, we all need to reflect and get back in touch with, whatever it was that really mattered in what we were doing. I, I wanted to just uh, push back a little bit on that point, Please do. if I may. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can't you say that you could only get that feeling of wanting to be away from the carrots or from the, the elitist institutions yeah. after you actually got, get there? So in the sense that you, you still made it there and you still worked hard and got there. And, and I say this because um, my, my friend Arjun and I, we did an interview with um, this guy named Pete Muller and he is a billionaire hedge fund guy running one of the most successful quantitative hedge funds in New York City. And he writes songs on, on the free time. And when we did an interview with him and he said, you know, th there, were, there were times when he was working at Morgan Stanley or some other top shot firms, he's like, I, I, I did all the sprints and then I just couldn't take it anymore. I really want to go back and retreat to a, a, a more solitary lifestyle and reflect on their lives and slow down a little bit. And after the interview, I was joking with my friend. I said, yeah, man, look at, look at him. He, he, he took the time to slow down. I mean, he lived a chill life. And then my friend was like, yeah, after he did the sprint, after he was a billionaire and he was good at this, he didn't just start slowing down when he was like an undergrad like us. So he still sprinted there. Um, well, I, I think the, honestly, that's very interesting. And uh, it's a very good challenge. I, I'm not too concerned about it, to be honest, because I think it's true that for my particular story, like, you know, I was a competitive person and I had to go after success to the best of my ability and see what it was like, you know? And now maybe I wouldn't have been able to succeed, right? There's a lot of chance goes into that, a lot of good luck, um, but I had to do it. And then once I got it, then I was able to reflect and think, although it was, it was gosh, it was difficult. I mean, I, I, I really don't know, um, I, I think, it's easy to be cavalier about how, oh, 
I'll be successful. And then if I don't like it, I'll just take, you know, I, I, I remember this when I was actually a senior in college, you know, my friends would say, Oh, I'm going to go to law. I'm going to go into law. I'm going to make a ton of money for 10 years and then I'm going to do whatever Retire I want. Retire if, if it doesn't work out. And it doesn't, some people do it, but not everyone does it because it's, you get, you get hooked into it. Um, and it, it's harder to get out. So, so I, I wouldn't overestimate the ease of getting back out once you're in. But I also think that there are other people who have, I think, my mature values who didn't have to go through all the stuff that I went through to get them. So, I mean, I, you know, you have to travel a bit to, you know, in your social life, or maybe if you're lucky, you come from a family like this. But there are people who are unemployed or underemployed working in jobs that are really not particularly exciting, uh, you know, HR jobs or uh, receptionist jobs. Uh, and they're very interesting people. Their real life is not at their job. Their real life is their um, intense botany hobby or their obsession with birds or their working through some period of history very carefully and they've read all of the books about it. Um, these are people who it seems to me who have their head on straight. They don't need to go through, uh, they may have something in them that feels like, oh, I'm a failure, oh, I'm a failure, which is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Cause I'm like, no, no, you're not a failure. You actually got things right. But the, so, you know, you may have this desire, which because you haven't experienced its fulfillment, you think that maybe you're missing something but you don't need the success to do that. Um, you only, uh, it's, you, you can live a, a wholesome, happy life without uh, putting yourself through the traces and, and having to, just, just, just like you don't, like, I mean, you think about it, you don't have to, I'm sure you've read stories about people who've led a life of crime and then have reformed, right? But you don't need <laughs> to go live a life of crime to see what they see. Now, you do to see exactly what they see in the way that they see it. These are very important stories. But right. No one reads it and says like, oh yeah, you know, I should totally just try that life of crime thing because otherwise I'll never get wise. Uh, so there's many, many paths. And, um, you know, it's important just to have as best idea you can about what, what kind of challenges your particular path face. So you said you don't really need success. success. Success is not necessary in order for you to get there, but do you think pain or solitude or solitary reflection would be necessary for you to get there? Because you had very painful moments in your career. So yeah, I do think that um, solitude of some kind, it doesn't have to be total, doesn't have to be complete some mode of withdrawal, whether it's a habit that you have, uh, going on walks by yourself, reading by yourself, uh, or meditation or prayer or, or something of that kind. You need some kind of solitude. And yes, you do need to suffer. But the nice thing about suffering, <laughs> which is a phrase I like to say, the nice thing about suffering, you don't have to go far to get it. You're going to get some. Your, your, <laughs> your desires are going to be frustrated you're going to really, really want things that you don't get. You uh, are going to undertake types of work which are much, much more difficult than you think they're going to be. And you're going to, to suffer in order to uh, get to the other end of them. So uh, the, the, the trick is to realize that the suffering is not something to be necessarily fled from or avoided, 
but uh, take it on as a, as a way to learn something, as an inevitable part of learning something or of, of growing into, the, into the, the world in a way that's, that's productive and, and healthy. Zina, the reason I asked you that is because I read this passage in your book that really struck me. You said, our vision of the love of learning is distorted by notions of economic and civic usefulness. I can be more blunt. We do not see intellectual life clearly because of our devotion to lifestyles rich in material comfort and social superiority. We want the splendor of Socratic thinking without his poverty. We want the thrill of his speaking truth to power without the full absorption in the life of the mind that made it possible. We want the profits of Talus uh, stargazing without the ridicule and we want Einstein's brilliant insights without the humiliation of joblessness followed by years of obscurity working in a patent office. So I read that and I, I felt hopeless and I was like, oh my God, is there a way out? Let me, I, I wanna, I, if I wanna make a contribution like Socrates or Kant or, or uh, Einstein, do I have to go through the suffering? Uh, the, the short answer is yes, you do. Um, so sorry, you do. Materialistic suffering. It cannot just be me being a successful uh, investment banker and then living an intellectual lifestyle and then going through some. Well, it might be. I mean, everyone's life is different. I mean, I, my my book isn't meant to give you like a recipe. Right. You know, uh, follow this and you'll you'll live an authentic intellectual life. But I think if you the the trick here is a type of self you want to cultivate a type of self knowledge like when am i and we all do it's totally human when am i taking the easy way out uh here's an example a kind of a hot button political example to spice up this podcast since it's gotten it's been so pious and and so healthy so yes. <laughs> think about this black the black lives matter movement okay so this is my point of view i i think that uh the police kill black people pretty often without reason and they get away with it. Um, I don't know all the causes of that. I've never been a police officer, but I know that there's a problem. Um, and we had this very dramatic uh, set of killings in, in spring and a big movement against it. And uh, now what's the easiest thing for an institution to do? Well, you set up a, a, a diversity and inclusion task force, you know, you you make maybe make some new positions, you know, you hire someone, maybe you maybe you mess around with the language that you use, maybe you change the way whether you capitalize B for black or W for white. <laughs> That's all the easy stuff. You know what's hard is actually really living a life with other people where where you are struggling every day to get past race. Now, let me tell you, there's not like a um you know, no task force is going to be able to find like a neat set of rules that you can just follow through and then you'll be a good person. And then no matter who, what background anyone has, if they come into your workplace, everything's going to be fine. That's not going to happen. It's nitty gritty. It's difficult and it's uncomfortable and it's different for every situation. So that's an example of where our desires for shortcuts just overwhelm uh, are better intentions, you know, I think a lot of people are well-intentioned. They're very upset about the killings. They want, they're very upset about the, the degree to which we're still a racist community, but they're doing a lot of things that um, are, are, are shortcuts and are easy ways out and that take the pressure off of us to do things that are more meaningful and more profound. So I, if you start looking for stuff like this, you see it 
everywhere and you see it in yourself and you think, okay, I don't want to take the shortcut. I want to actually get the real thing. And I'm willing to undertake whatever I have to do to get that real thing. Um, so, I mean, why did Einstein keep doing physics? He was a failure. He didn't get a job. Uh, I love to say this in academic context because there's always grad students listening and, and you know, they, they don't always know that, that he went for years unable to get a job. Um, but he cared about it enough that he carved out space um, in his life to do it. Uh, and he, he, he endured these years of humiliation and of not being respected. Um, and, you know, I think he might have been more free and more independent and more clear-headed for not having had all of that, uh, all the carrots of success. Um, I think it, it can be freeing uh, in an old-fashioned sense of freedom where um, if you're not dependent on something as a source of satisfaction, you can take it or leave it. Like success is great. It's not bad. You shouldn't avoid success necessarily, but you want to be able to leave it when it's not good anymore. Um, Zina, right? I, again, I want to quickly yeah. push back on that point Please. because actually I was just talking to a friend of mine that day and sometimes I say, why, why, don't, go, why don't people, more people pursue this kind of frontier research? Why don't more people go do that exciting thing? Why do most people, uh, most kids out of college choose to do, get pulled away by what most other people do? And, and my friend said something, he said, that's, that's just because, I mean, you can't expect everybody to be like Socrates, right? You can't expect everybody to, to try to live out of that kind of suffering kind of lifestyle like Einstein. Um, and you, you shouldn't blame people for, and I'm not saying you are, uh, that they just want to live a comfortable lifestyle and not go through the suffering to create something truly great or something. So, yeah, I, 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 again, I know yeah. you are not arguing that at, at, at all, but I- No, I, no, I, I, like, I like pushback. Cause it, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you spent any time over in the philosophy department across the street from you in Princeton, but, but the, you know, I learned how to fight there. So that <laughs> I, I'm trained for combat, as I like to say, in the Princeton philosophy department. So that I, I don't think that's right because, um, I mean, to a point it's true. So it's not, I think you don't want to over moralize it. That's why I say you have to look at yourself, recognize these very natural human tendencies. You're never going to get rid of them. You're never going to root them out. It's human. You want comfort. You want things to be easy and you want things to be pleasant. And sometimes that's the best you can do. You're exhausted. You're going through major difficulties. You know, that's not the time to undertake some painful project. So I think you have to be humane about it and you have to be realistic. But you also have to see that our institutions, I mean, I'm not saying anything, I don't think very outrageous right now. Our institutions are in a very, very poor condition. Uh, our educational institutions are, our political institutions are, everything's kind of a wreck. And uh, it's just not good enough for everyone to just go and do what's comfortable. Because if you go do what's comfortable, you're just watching the whole thing just, uh, you collapse. know, tip, tipple over and collapse. And, um, and that's not what we need. Now, that's, again, that's not to judge an individual at a particular moment. It's not to judge our, our impulses, which are, are only human. It's just to say that, th if anything, this is a time where we have to, you know, buck up and realize we're gonna have to undertake some risks. We're gonna put ourselves in awkward positions. 
Uh, and we have to do it because we need uh, functioning institutions. We need uh, pass. We need to pass on to the young good things, so, uh, a future that means something. Uh, and that's that's just going to take work. So why don't we talk a little bit about the the, the uh, faults or, or shortcomings of our current educational or political system? So certainly it doesn't seem too feasible too feasible to revamp the entire educational system so so that all colleges are designed like St. John to have 20, 20 person discussion groups. And I know that is not a policy you're trying to, to vouch for, but how do you think are some of the concrete steps we can take on maybe changing the way we grade students, maybe changing the curriculum uh, or, or, or changing the, the, the cultural dialogue there? What do you think? So so I want to say something uh, pretty radical about this, which is that I, I recognize, I, I don't, as you say, even though I'm on this policy podcast, I don't, I'm not an educational policy maker. Um, but this much I will say, uh, you cannot do large scale inculcation of intellectual habits and virtues. It doesn't happen on the large scale. It happens on small scales. It happens on personal scales. It happens in small groups. And I think in a way, if you just think about it just for a second, you can see how that has to be true. If you think about like studying karate or taking the piano, um, those are things where, or playing football, you have a teacher or a coach or a mentor who watches what you do, who corrects your behavior, who offers a model. That's how learning works um for any significant skill that becomes really a part of your life it's a very limited set of skills that can be passed on on this kind of large large factory scale so what that means is our institutions are really not set up to pass on this type of learning anymore and i don't i i'm fully aware of the financial challenges of an educational institution right now trying to make their classes smaller because that's making everything more expensive to a very, very large degree. If you want 20 person classes, you're hiring tons and tons of faculty. Uh, and faculty are among the more expensive things that you have apart from administrators in a university. So I, so I don't know the answer to that question. And part of what I think is that it may be that our institutions are under so much pressure from outside regulations, um, accreditation bureaus, uh, federal law regulating this and that. So there's tons and tons and tons of energy and money has to go into types of reporting, types of procedure, um, which is not going into the core activity of the institution. So you can see how, and this is I think actually an economic principle, even though you know a lot more about economics than I do, that the, as over time an institution is going to get more and more disconnected from its primary social function. And it's going to be more and more taken up with these um, side activities. And it may be that our institutions are at a point where it's just going to be tough to fix them. And in which case what we need is new institutions. We need to find different ways of getting these practices and habits out into the world, um, out into communities, uh, and I have a few ideas about what that looks like, but I don't know, and I don't really want to determine on a broad scale what that looks like. What I want to do, what I feel like my job is, is to 
make clear what I think the values of education have to be. What are the fundamental goods that education should be trying to produce? Then if I can persuade people of that, then people of all walks of life, who have all kinds of expertise that I don't have, who are situated in different uh, parts of the economy and different types of community, they can figure out how to best put that into place where they are. Um, but I'm, I'm fully aware of, uh, of the challenges that face a modern university in this respect. But I do want to just say straight out that they are not, they are not set up at the moment to cultivate uh, intellectual life. And to the extent that that's happening, it's happening because there's a few hardy, dedicated teachers who are carving out the space to do it, uh, despite what's going on in the institution. There's a lot of people like that, and they're wonderful people, and they should be treasured, and if you could take classes from them, you should. Um, but there's, there's just not, at the institutional level, I don't see much going on that's positive. Um, I completely agree, and I think it's, it's really hard, Zena. I think that the yeah. vision that we're talking about where there could be more sm small groups and such and so on, but f from my perspective, if I, again, may push back a little bit, I think often it is not what happens in the classroom or, or not even from the teacher per se, but there seems to be that you, you need to cultivate kind of a intellectual culture amongst the students such that they're willing to engage in intellectual dialogues, in, engage with each other, debate and such and so on in their small group settings. And, and I say that based on my own personal experience because some of my best friends are all engineers. They're computer science researchers, they're mathematicians. They don't really do humanities but they make more brilliant arguments about politics or humanities than a lot of the humanities majors I know, or a lot of the other kids I know. And I, and I think it's that they acquired a certain rigorous research skill set from the hard science classes that they're taking, even though those science classes are big lectures. But it's also because our own small group discussions that we often debate at dinner or lunch that cultivated this kind of intellectual discourse which I don't think is present in most groups because first of all, it's not considered cool, right? It, it, you don't get girls by talking about like artificial intelligence ethics at, at dinner, right? You, you, you do, <laughs> the right girls. You get the right girls. It's, sure. just, it's just hard to wait, I understand. So it, it does not seem that there, I mean, and this is at Princeton we're talking right. about and we're yeah. not even talking about the vast majority of the institution out there. So I just think the, the pockets or, or, or the available space that we've created for quote unquote intellectual discourse is very, very limited. Yeah, I, I think that's really right. And, I, and I, it's funny to hear you talk because I've had this experience. I've been traveling around to college campuses. I, I give lectures for something called the Thomistic Institute to uh, groups of Catholic students at different colleges around the country. And I, I often find that the engineers are the most intense uh, discussers of humanities related things. And I've wondered about it. It's a bit mysterious <laughs> to me um, because of course it goes counter to stereotype, right? But it's, it's true. And I actually I have friends who, a couple of friends who teach at MIT who tell me that uh, one teaches English, one teaches philosophy. And they say that their MIT students are just on fire for philosophy and English. You know? It may also be partly that it's it's the thing you don't have to do, right? It's 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 more obviously superfluous, yeah. Uh, and so you you can pursue it more freely. I guess though the main thing I wanted to say in response to what you're saying is it's another reason um, to think about the cultivation of intellectual life, not in terms of reforming universities primarily, even though I think they do and should be reformed. 
it's, it's finding ways to get into the broader culture, habits of reading and talking and thinking. So for instance, I've been working on, it's, it's very infant stages, but an adult education project, which is online and involves, uh, you know, getting anyone who's interested together to read difficult books and write about them and think about them seriously, just to build some community, even if it's online community, which is not as good as in-person community. Uh, so people have some support for this kind of activity. And so that over time, I hope people will bring this kind of thing into their everyday communities, you know, into their lunchrooms at work. Uh, but we do, we do, that is, we, we do need a more uh, holistic global approach. It's, it's not enough just to get some institutions running. Um, we have to think about this as being like, um, I mean, in a way it sounds diminishing and sometimes I get pushback for this too, but uh, gardening or cooking, everyone knows these are good things to do, right? Uh, every, everyone in the world, uh, when you're young, maybe not, but when you're older, everyone gardens, everyone cooks, everyone does a little work around the house, you know, everyone builds something, everyone knits something. Everyone knows this is a good thing to do, not because you're good at it, but just because it's good to do things for yourself. Uh, and I, I want to get, I think in the 20th century was much more a part of our common culture to read and to think and to talk about ideas. So part of what I want to do is to do what I can to try to bring some of that back just as a, as a hobby, as, a, as something to do. Uh, and I think that will help with the institutional problems as well once it's part of our uh, a more ordinary way of thinking about your life. Uh, again, I, I think maybe we could go a little bit deeper about this part about um, reforming our institution because you said, I, I guess hearing from what you were saying, it seems that you advocate for more liberal arts education in terms of more um, small group discussions, more study of the Western canon, more literature, more humanities that cultivates discussions. And I'll play devil's advocate here. And I would say, what is the point of liberal arts education, especially in college? I mean, it, does it make us well-rounded? Does it cultivate our personality? And I pose this challenge because I would like to make this contrarian argument. I think college kids are not so much more beyond what they already, what they were like when they graduated high school. And I say this again, very much based off my experience and based on people I've observed is that if you graduated high school and you're a well-rounded person, you know how to make arguments, you're, when, when you go to college, just by taking a couple more history classes, it won't make you even more quote unquote well-rounded. And if you're a nerdy person, if you specialize, if you were a math champion in high school, again, go, going to receive, uh, you know, take a couple more history or philosophy classes, I doubt that would fundamentally change you. And I, and I think the danger of liberal arts education is that people end up with this wishy-washy thing, right? It, it, it's like, they're not that good with humanities. They don't know Greek and Latin literature because all they do is read excerpts from online. They don't actually read the books. They, they go read some you know, online thing and they come to the class and they um, you know, spill out some BS to the professors and get a good discussion grade. And, I'm, and a lot of kids are really, really good at them. And, and they're not that good with research skills. They're not good with the hard math and sciences because they're not required to specialize in something of the STEM nature. So I, so I see so many Princeton students leaving Princeton, being well-rounded person, which they are, but very much not because of the Princeton education, but because 
they came from a nice family or because they were already well-rounded when they went to a, a good high school. So I don't think it's the Princeton education that really made them better off or worse off. And, and in fact, had they specialized a little bit more, had they pushed a little bit themselves a little bit harder in the hard sciences or, or in specializing in one degree, they would have probably made more academic advancement. So, so, so I don't know. I think that's a great argument. I think it's I'm wonderful. Sorry for actually. my rant. I, I go on. No, no, on. no. I, I like the rant. I, it's very interesting, <laughs> and I, and I, I, I it, it's it's complicated for me to figure out exactly how I'm going to disagree. I mean, I do, but I hear what you're saying, uh, and it sounds true to me. Uh, so I, I don't want to deny your experience, but I want to think more about what's going on. So one thing that's going on, at, by your own description, the humanities classes are not very good. Uh, so if, if you're reading excerpts and if you're spitting out BS and then doing really well, something's gone wrong. So, so you, you, and that's again, I think probably a matter of scale. So you, even though Princeton is famous for mentoring and for teaching, I think that's available for you if you seek it out, uh, in the humanities, I mean, you have some of the best humanists in the world across the street, right? But no one's going to make you okay, really get serious about it. You can, you can kind of coast by because we think of students, universities do, as kind of consumers that you want to make happy and you don't want to make them things too hard for them if they don't want to do stuff that's hard. So you want to kind of make it available for them to do stuff that's hard without really forcing them to be challenged. I think there are all kinds of paths through college which do just what you describe. You know, you, you, um, you come out of it just the way you came into it, only a little older. And whatever you got beforehand is coming out later. Now, here's something else though, that's happening. Um, there's less, I'm sure you know this as an economics person, there's less social mobility than there used to be. So you're not getting um, college, even when I was a student, and I'm not that old, uh, it was more of a kind of, hodgepodge of people from different backgrounds. And for someone like me um, to be in this very intellectual environment, very serious and Divorce. very, very immersive and with all different kinds of people. I mean, you know, there weren't, we weren't all smart. We weren't all rich. We were, you know, we were kind of a mess, people of that generation. <laughs> uh, and but I, you know, I, 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 I was very much transformed and a lot of my friends were too. We left different than we came. There's just no question about it. Uh, and that's partly because it was easier if you came from some kind of weird checkered background to go to a relatively fancy college, uh, even like St. John's and certainly a place like Princeton, you know, you've got to really, these days you have to start you know, age of three, preschool, you know, you've got your pre-SATs, you know, at kindergarten, yes. you know, you're on this, I mean, this is all what I hear. Um, so you're, you're getting um, people who are- uh, Top of the top or-, or... Well, they're, they're, they're trained to be on a track their whole lives. And the college just continues that track yes. and puts them onto a career track, just- yes. And that's a very different model of college than what you experienced. Here's this place, all kinds of people turn up uh, and yes. we do some liberal arts things and we get to know each other and you, f you get to know different kinds of people. You form these friendships that you never do again. Uh, you build a, a network, something people talk about a lot, a 
I think it's true. Uh, so I, I think that both those things are going on. On the one hand, humanities education is not very good and, and, and universities are reluctant to challenge their students um, and to really give them assignments that are difficult. I mean, look, let me just, exp so this is getting so bad, you have no idea. So, uh, you know, I teach at St. John's, there's a lot of great books programs that were founded in the 1930s. So Columbia has a core founded in the 1930s or a little earlier, 20s. Chicago has a core founded around the same time. So I was at a, a conference a couple of years ago with people from these programs and they were saying things like, oh, I can't get my students to read the Iliad in uh, less than a semester. We need a, we need a whole semester to read the Iliad and we have to use a translation that's pretty easy. This is someone from like the University of Chicago. That's a good school, right? Right. Whereas we read the Iliad in two weeks. Um, we read it very fast. We don't get into all the depth, but that's because we just don't modify stuff. You know, we have these old fashioned habits where we keep our curriculum the same and we don't adapt it for what our students want. But the, the you know, the, um, we're really under a lot of pressure as professors not to challenge our students. Uh, and that's a lot of what you're talking about. So STEM, now I wonder, this is just pure speculation. STEM, of course, is serious. <laughs> STEM is what really matters. No different other versions of let, stories. And let, you. Let, let everything collapse around <laughs> us as long as STEM is intact. So that's, those are classes where students expect a challenge. They want to challenge. Professors have permission to give them a challenge. Wow. And so a student that wants a challenge is going to be attracted to it. And so you're going to get these brilliant humanists or people who are brilliant at anything. Uh, but you, you need to get those challenges back in ordinary classrooms because they're not for smart people. They're not for brilliant people. Anyone benefits from right. being challenged and anyone can read a tough book and get something out of it. It may not be right answer it might not be the most complete summary but they can get something out of it and it's healthy and good to to challenge people that way um i i completely agree with i guess your critique is more about how the humanity subjects matters yeah. have the disciplines have fallen to a to to demand less of a stand higher standard to yeah. their students and i I guess the reason I say this is because I, so I went to a boarding school, high school right. for four right. years and I came to the States when I was 13. My, my English was all right, but I went to the boarding school and at my boarding school, everybody has to take this double credit humanities class for all three, four years of your um, life. And, and it's like one of the hardest classes I've ever taken. I mean, we had to read just as kind of what you said, the first year we read uh, Homer and then you continue on reading all the other pieces in Western canon. And I was challenged so much because it was like a 12 person class. You have to write essays. You have to come up with good discussion points. And it really pushed me. Um, and, and I fell in love with art history. I fell in love with German, all because of the smart classroom settings. But I also have to say, when I got to Princeton, I think one of the best decisions I've made is to not become a humanities major. I, I, think, I think my other mentors my, will, will, will kill me after they hear me saying this, that I'm really glad that I didn't major in art history, but because I think I wouldn't have been pushed as hard had I been an art history major. And I, and I regret not being a math major because I'm taking math classes right now that are you know, 400 level math classes. And with those math kids, I mean, we spent, I spent like 25 hours over this weekend on this problem set. Yeah. And I'm, I, I've only done 
nigh problems. So, so I'm not even halfway through. So it's, it's so challenging and it puts you so hard. And yes. so I, I completely agree that it's, it's kind of a different caliber. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, I do think that your instinct is right, that students need to challenge themselves and challenging oneself should not, I want to emphasize this because what I'm saying about challenge might seem in tension with my being all egalitarian and stuff and thinking that everyone can do this. The best kinds of education are ones that I've experienced are ones where you're exposed to a challenge and you're under a certain amount of social pressure to meet it. So you've got to turn up for class. You've got 12 people in the room. You better have done your reading because everyone's going to see that you haven't done it. But, but what if uh, nobody does the reading? Well, no, yeah, that's it, bad. That's really bad. hard. Yeah, yeah, that's really hard. That's bad. That, 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 there's almost nothing you can do at that point uh, if no one's done the reading. But, so, but the point is that you want, a, you, want pre, you want to be challenged, but you also want to be respected and left alone to achieve whatever you're going to achieve. Not everyone is going to become uh, king or queen of philosophy or literature or, for that matter, economics or engineering. So you, you want to think about what an individual needs to learn. That also is what requires the small scale. Uh, and to challenge us as individuals. Um, anyway, I'm probably getting a little off topic. But. Oh, uh, by, by the way, I, I do want to clarify, I'm not accusing any of my... Yeah. humanities departments at Princeton. I think, I think the humanities departments actually produce some of the most brilliant students. I mean, yeah. the kids who actually do the work are, are brilliant, but... Um, I think they probably need a certain amount of self-direction. That's my experience. I mean, this also fits with what I was saying before, right, about my old classes teaching philosophy. In every classroom, there were students that were who were driven on their own to do this. So I'm sure, I'm, I know, in fact, because I, I did TA there a little bit. Um, students turn up at Princeton who are driven to go the extra mile in philosophy. But there are people like me, and maybe you're like them too, where the challenge has got to come from the outside. Like you need someone to tell you, you know, that's not good enough. Come, up, come a little right. higher. And it's good to know that about yourself, and it's good to seek out those kinds of classes that are really going to push you. Um, uh, Zina, I, I think there's something I, I do want to break it to you and I, 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 I oh geez okay thanks me, i'm sitting let, down i'm sitting me, down so i can take it tell you, so what i worry is because there's so much materials online and that the environment academic environment today is so fundamentally different for the, the time you went to college it's become so easy for students to get past a humanities major uh and and the, and the way i say this is for example what do you think of the question list that, that, that I sent you. Uh, I, I, it's quite brilliantly written. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, by the way, I'm not breaking to you. I didn't read the book. I did read the book, but, but you got we, it all from the internet. We have a brilliant team of four ladies, wonderfully talented ladies who, I mean, we have the way our podcast is run is that they help do research. They read book reviews, they gather, they watch your podcast interviews. Um, they've, they've done such a wonderful job collecting all kinds of information about you <laughs> that they produced a wonderful research portfolio and list of questions. Not, I mean, by the way, obviously, um, I, I guess they, they at least laid down the foundation for this wonderful list of questions that I think you probably wouldn't be able to tell that they didn't read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, <laughs> this is, 
That's hilarious, by the way. I love that trick. I, I, I love that you played that on me. And it's like the oh, perfect- no, I wasn't, That wasn't the intention. I didn't It wasn't the intention this. because it's just... perfect. You should do that to every professor that comes on your show. You should say, you know what? That came straight off of Wikipedia. <laughs> I'm about to bring that. I've, I've read zero book on policy punchline. <laughs> no, no, well, that's why, that's why it's not enough. Um, you know, we think a lot in policy, right? Including educational policy, about how to make people do things, right? And there's limitations to that question. You can't, given, you're right, given the way the internet is, you can't make people actually do the reading. Um, it's too easy to like go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and pick up a few words and phrases and then bring exactly. that to class. And then your professor's like, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh yes, exactly. I really, you've really got to put your finger on what this means. You know, so, uh, and of course we were all educated in different eras, so it's, it's even worse, right? Cause we don't fully understand how easy it is, you know, and, and we yeah. don't really want to know cause it, it, it's, it's disillusioning. Um, so what that means is that people have to want the challenge the same way that you're describing wanting the challenge of math or of economics. They have to realize that the humanities offer a valuable challenge, a way of shaping your mind uh, that's enjoyable and wonderful and, uh, and, you know, so useful for so many different kinds of things. So that's, again, part of the broadness of the difficulty we're talking about. It's not just how do we, you know, how do we, I mean, why do you think I had to leave ordinary institutions and go to this weird little corner? It's because <laughs> I can't, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't find a way to make my classrooms work in the way that I thought they had to work. Um, so I had to go to this more like greenhouse type place where the culture is very different and where everyone's on the same page and everyone's doing the same kind of thing. And we attract a certain kind of student. And then suddenly I find I can do the kinds of things I wanted to do. Uh, but that's not, you know, you, that's not a, again, it's not a recipe. Uh, but I, I do think that this is why we need to promote the liberal arts, broadly speaking, not just for schools, but for part of life so that people say, oh my gosh, like I get to read Kafka for this class. Oh my gosh, I get to read Hegel for this class. And that they, they relish the challenge um, and, and they see it as something shameful and disgraceful to like look up the summary online the same way that in olden times it was the cliff notes you know it's like exactly oh you read the cliff notes for hamlet now that was not something you wanted to be known to do uh, you know like you wanted to have read the hamlet so you need a whole culture that values it's learning the culture it is yeah, the culture and it's and the it, culture that values learning and that recognizes the virtues of the mind as being something that you really want just like you want to be able to run fast just like Absolutely. you want to be able to but we've lost our confidence not just the young people but the older people too we've lost confidence that these things are really worth learning and uh so it's it's kind of it's just kind of collapsed from from top to bottom you know i think again quickly recapping what we've talked about in the past half an hour i guess it seems that it needs to come from two sides one is humanities as a discipline needs to find new ways to challenge their students, the educators. The, whether by reforming the classroom sizes to have more interesting curriculums or whether harder tests or whatever, that has to come. The other side is that we kind of have to cultivate from a bottoms up uh, fashion, a intellectual 
environment or culture amongst the kids that they feel like it's no longer cool to say, hey man, I didn't even read a single page and I still had this wonderful discussion. But we should be ashamed that our research team did this list of questions without reading the actual book. Do you know what I think would make those people ashamed actually is if they were a little more socially mobile, they, they, if they knew like these people who I swear they're everywhere, like uh, they're in prison, they drive taxis, they collect garbage, they've read more than the college undergraduates have. Now imagine, okay, like this person yeah. who you think of as being low status, who's actually read all of Shakespeare. Whereas, you know, you looked up the Wikipedias on the Shakespeare Absolutely. plays and worked things out, you know, maybe not the Wikipedia, but the, the next level up. Sure. Um, you know, it's Princeton, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, but, you know, if, if people saw more clearly what it does for people and what kind of person you can become and learn to value that, I think it would do a lot of good, honestly, because it's, it's really like BSing your way through a humanities class, it's not a way to, to respect yourself or others. I mean, it's just a waste of time. I mean, I agree with you in that sense. It's a waste of time. It, it, it is, it is an, I think a long, long shot to yeah. really get kids to, to do, yeah. Um, there's another topic I would love to dive in with you is the uselessness or the usefulness of the intellectual life or intellectual engagement. Um, you wrote this, I guess, very interesting part. You said, if intellectual life is not left to rest in its splendid uselessness, it will never bear its practical fruit. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your thesis on, on the <laughs> idea of uselessness? The problem is you made me suspicious and I was like, I'm pretty sure that was quoted in like a, a review. Like, did no. I create the... <laughs> but I'm happy to <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, I will, uh, no, there no, no, are no. other passages I can find It's out, also, so. I don't even, like, I, I actually, I don't think this type of book is, it's, it's meant to be there for people to be inspired and helped in whatever way. It's not the Iliad, okay? So, yeah, uh, I've, I've completely crushed the, the reputation and credibility of Policy Punch of the, of the podcast. <laughs> no, you just haven't. Just to get a laugh of... Uh, <laughs> no, no, you haven't. You haven't because what you've done is you've, um, you've displayed, we've displayed honestly to <laughs> the students and to the teachers that are listening, you know, what we all knew really happens in classrooms. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, so uh, the uselessness, I think, is really uh, important in a funny way. So I, I think, let me say this, that, that part of my book is partly rhetorical because when I first started reading about, back five years ago, there was this thing called the crisis of the humanities. Okay, it was a media crisis. And there were 10 trillion magazine articles uh, about the humanities and their decline and what needed to happen. And what they all, all, all hammered on was, oh, it's so useful. Like it, philosophy majors are the hottest ticket in Silicon Valley. Like, you know, they all want this innovative, critical thinking, you know, that you can only get from the humanities. Uh, I thought that was dumb. Uh, I think there's truth in it. But just for the reasons actually you've been talking about, about actually how much you can learn about the humanities while studying something else, uh, it doesn't have a lot of bite. Um, and, uh, and if you're, if you're BSing your way through your humanities classes, it certainly doesn't make sense. You're certainly not gonna get those innovative skills that are going to, 
what you're going to learn how to do is how to, to how to, to move through your workplace without ever having done any work uh, while exactly. still while still getting approval, which is a reasonable skill. It's it's useful for life, but it's not a robust, meaningful skill. Sure. So I wanted to press very very hard in the other direction. So I wanted to talk about how. Uh, intellectual life, reading, thinking, reflecting matters for you, even if you're unsuccessful, even if you're a failure, even if you end up in prison, even if you end up in a political environment, which is beyond your control and totally corrupt. Okay, that's just what the, the Nazi Germany or the um, Italian fascist examples are meant to, to show. Um, you may be in circumstances where you can't quote unquote make a difference. Uh, and your intellectual life will still matter to you. In fact, it might be all that you have to secure your dignity. So I wanted to make, on the one hand, that kind of point. That is, uh, it's, it's, um, it's part of who you are, a proper intellectual life. It's not something that you do. It's not a product. It doesn't make you money. It doesn't get you status. Not all on its own. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of how you live. And... Um, to think of that as being useful diminishes it, I think, in a certain way. In the same way, um, you know, you don't have kids because they're useful. They are useful. Uh, they take care of you when you're old and they do some chores around the house. Um, that's not why people have them. They have them because there's something about human life that they want to pass on and continue into the future. Um, oh, and I, I, I totally see this po point you're making now because, again, when I was applying to Princeton and touring for college when I was in high school, I was very much a humanities person and I visited German departments and art history departments and almost every professor I met with, I mean, I, I guess they, they all brought up the point that doing a German major or doing an art history major will not prevent you from going to McKenzie or Goldman Sachs, and perhaps it's even better. So, and obviously, they have no bad intention of preventing me to actually pursuing the, the love of the knowledge, but it, it almost felt like they should make that disclaimer up front, or, or they're going to scare this kid away who is going to quit humanities in fear of not finding a job at Goldman Sachs. Right. Um, yeah. I, I also feel like, honestly, it's patronizing. So, you know, why did I decide go into the humanities or decide to teach them? Not because I wanted kids to go work for Goldman Sachs. Not that there's anything wrong necessarily with working with Goldman Sachs. I mean, it might be wrong. It might be okay. It depends on what you're doing. Um, but that's, I, I got into, I, I love this kind of work. I find it fun and fascinating and challenging and profound. And it helps me to grow in all kinds of ways. And that's what I want to pass on to my students. They can pick up job skills here and there anywhere and that I have no doubt that someone who's determined is going to figure out whatever they need to do to work at McKinsey or at Goldman or whatever else but you know so I wanted to I think that we we professors have to be honest about what we actually like about what we do and to assume that other people can understand it rather than being patronizing it's like oh all you care about is money and status so let me tell you like this can get you what you care about and I think that's transparent. I think people may not know why those arguments don't work, but they know they don't work because they know they're being talked down to. Um, and, and that really the humanities should be- More confident in-, in They in, should be confident, but it should also be, it should be something that you go into not knowing what your life is gonna look like on the other side. 
I mean, this is supposed to be a source of transformation. Absolutely. College. So, yeah, yeah, you know, you might like, so, you know, like Malcolm X in prison, you know, he picks up a bunch of books and he's a different person later. He doesn't say, how can I become, you know, a hotshot celebrity exactly. activist, you know, oh, I better read these books. He, he changes through the books and he figures out who he is and what he wants to be. So I, I think that assuming that some, that some ways of life are, all anyone's ever going to value and you've just got to figure out how to get them is it's very short-sighted and it's very patronizing. So I, I, I think it's wrong for all kinds of reasons. Um, and I, I, I also just think we need to think like, we just need to think about why it, yeah, what's in itself good about it. Why do we like learning history or thinking about bugs or watching birds or, or reading a good book or getting in a good conversation? What is it? that we like about that. That's what I'm trying to get at it in the book is- Because they do have great inherent value. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I, I think I will break it. Uh, I will literally crush you if I tell you that I'm gonna go work for Goldman Sachs. After, after that, <laughs> which I'm not, don't worry. But You're not gonna crush me. <laughs> had I, had I- <laughs> I was a grad student at Princeton and all of my, the students I TA'd either went to work for Goldman Sachs or they went into you know high hired law firms. And I was, to be honest, always a little disappointed that they weren't more creative. But I, I don't judge them, you know. So it's this is part of what Princeton does. Now, anyway, so I, I won't be crushed. Uh, so, so I, I guess let's talk about the opposite side of the corporate world. Let's talk about the academia. And I wanted to bring this somewhat devil's advocate idea to you as well in, in terms of the uselessness of academia. Not not saying again. This mm -hmm. is a phrase mm -hmm. that I that I made up, but I don't actually mean that. And I was talking to a friend of mine who is going to pursue a computer science PhD, and he and I were saying that he has a feeling that academia is a great place for people to spend decades working on things that they think are valuable, but are in fact useless. And, and by useless, I don't mean it in a sense of humanities work because they can't generate some you know, shareholder value, they're useless. I, I don't mean it that way. I mean that, for example, there are, in my discipline, economics, there are professors who spend decades working on certain models or certain mathematical formalism that try to map out what the world is, but are in fact complete misrepresentation. I mean, sure, they can argue, I enjoy it, I think it's right, but, but let's face it, you, you could certainly make the argument that you produce worthless work and that's why people criticize economics for being a tautology for uh, you know, just a weird social science. So don't you think that academia has a tendency to breed this kind of uselessness? So uh, I think that's a great question um, and not something that actually I've been, I haven't been asked about that much, even though I think it is something that I, I it's in the book in a certain way and I, I think about it. Um, if, so part of what I think, if, if you were to imagine a university or a college that really valued intellectual life for its own sake, okay? You would not demand um, masses of publications. So part of what you're seeing when you see these people who uh, churn up, you know, spend their whole lives on theories which actually don't make sense is that the, the manner of life, especially at the elite institutions, which unfortunately the most influential, it's so intense and so frenetic that you don't actually, you're not encouraged to take time to really think and reflect and to revise your views in accordance with reality. The easiest thing to do, the easiest way to succeed 
is to stake out a position, uh, you know, a unique position in the field and just uh, set up an industry in that corner and just keep publishing there and get enough attention for it that, that, you know, not only are you publishing, but your publications have some impact, some measurable impact. And then you're a success, uh, even if what you're saying makes no sense. Now, I want to be a little gentle here because I think that the intellect is a sloppy tool. And I think that it's just a fact that you can sort of uh, flounder around trying to figure something out and make a lot of mistakes. Uh, and it's not, you know, it, you're not going to be able to, if you've done, if you're, you're working on these math problem sets, you already know what I'm talking about because there's no recipe, right? Again, you just, you work on it for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And then all of a sudden, ting, maybe you get the insight that helps the whole thing fit together. Uh, that's how intellectual life is. Or maybe don't, maybe, maybe you hit the deadline and you've got to turn in your work, even though you haven't figured it out. Uh, which is what I had to do when I was taking classes like that, because uh, I was bad at it. Uh, so, so um, you know, so there's a kind of wastefulness, just given the kind of thing that intellect is. But a lot of what you're seeing is um, people who are making uh, careers out of research. Um, and the research has all these incentives built into it for it to disconnect from the thing it's talking about. So you, what part, another thing I think about universities from a policy perspective is that there's an overemphasis on research. There should be more of a focus on teaching, which um, can provide a kind of balance. Uh, that is, if you can't explain your theory to undergraduates, if you can't explain your thinking to undergraduates, then you might not, like it, it can be a good check. There are certain things that are too specialized and ordinary people can understand it. No question. But there's also- There should be uh, some inherent a connection, essence or truth. A connection to a human, connecting with human minds who don't already, who aren't already invested in your field, who yeah. don't already think what you think. Can you persuade them that what you're doing is valuable or that you've got some insight? That's a very, very good test for research. So for me, you know, I, I feel very grateful, you know, the Princeton philosophy department, we, I feel like we were always encouraged to ask of our work, well, is this interesting? You know, what's interesting about this? Where's the insight here? You know, what are you, where are you going with this? So you were discouraged from doing work that was sort of, uh, you know, you've got this big theoretical framework and you're tweaking this and you're tweaking that and, <laughs> You could do that your whole life because there was an awareness of this sect that it could become like an institution, something which the wheels spin for their own sake and it's, it's, it doesn't do any good. So I, I agree with you um, and I do think it's because of excessive focus on research at universities. Uh, well, then the universities will argue, after all, we're here to push the frontier of research and therefore this, some professors say, ah, I teach too much and it's distracting. And, I, I, I entirely agree with your point, but it's, it just seems to be such a stiff system that it's very, very hard to change. Well, I know, but it's, it's partly, when, when professors say, I thought about this a lot, when professors say, oh, I teach too much, um, that's, they're reflecting a value system, which is a social hierarchy. So, right, no one hires, I guess there are, uh, so, so, you know, the adjunct, right? They're just like, oh, teaching, 
Teaching can be done by someone for a few thousand dollars. The lecturer. With senior a PhD. Or, you know, yeah. They, yeah, senior lecturer. Uh, someone who just graduated could teach that class. So, so there's a sense that teaching is not intellectually substantive or worthwhile or a, a, a high status exercise of your talents, but it really is for one. And for another thing, I think if you talk to researchers honestly about their fields, they'll all tell you there's too much research. There's too much to read. There's more than anyone can read. Now, the point of literature, right, is so that there's some conversation that you're the master of that you then contribute to. And if you can't master it anymore, it's, it's not clear what the point of it is, uh, unless you're just sort of logging data. Um, but even then, the data only matters for a question. It doesn't matter just on its own. So it's, it, I, I, I think if you, if you talk to people honestly about their fields and about their research, they'll tell you some of there's the, too much. I, I, I think we are, this interview already touched on some of the most dangerous developments that I guess we're seeing in our educational system these days. I mean, we talked about overemphasis of research. I, I guess you, you mentioned how the hiring of adjunct professors or, or senior lecturers or postdocs to, um, to teach. I mean, the U.S. has seen just this kind of blowing up of hiring postdocs and, and using them as a cheap labor force to do all the teaching. Uh, whereas the more tenure professors accumulate most of the fundings when it comes to research and junior professors don't actually get as much. So th they seem to be getting, you know, pulled on, on both ends. And also the blowing up of university, the number of university administrators and, and yep. growing amount of student debts, which make uh, college life so, so inherently different for students these days compared to the boomer generation when yeah. back then you could work as a paper boy and you pay off the student debt these oh, days. Oh yeah. Or even my generation, I'm not a boomer. I'm, the <laughs> yeah, children of, I'm a child <laughs> of boomers. So I just want to be clear. No, I just want to be clear. I was not I'm, implying. Okay. Not implying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so. getting into this millennial versus boomer thing. I'm out of the, I'm out of the fray. I'm in between. Uh, some would say I'm a Gen Z, not a millennial. So. <laughs> I don't accept that. You're millennial. The, I, I think, I guess what I want to say, because I've been talking a lot and maybe not as succinctly as I might, that I think that the way the current university is put together, it's bad for research and for teaching. So we, we get this idea that somehow, oh, you've got to choose as individuals between research and teaching, but both You're teaching- You're not doing well either. We're not, neither is flourishing. So, you know, you need to rethink um, what you're doing. and. I think the best way is to de-emphasize research a bit and put more emphasis on teaching, put in some more incentives for people to teach their own classes, um, put more value on the quality of teaching. And then that's, that's also how you get students who are really invested in, I mean, people have been pouring um, overworked teachers into humanities fields and in intro classes and they say, oh, where did all our majors go? No, oh, why, why does no one want to study this anymore? It's like, well, you haven't been teaching it to the best of your ability, so what do you expect? Um, like it's, it's not going to grow unless you put some energy into the future. As you know, I know we've already been going on for like an hour and a half. Do you have a little bit more time to, to dive into one or two more themes? Or, sure. Or are... sure, I have a little more time. Yeah, I have some, Hegel, I have some Hegel to look over for tonight. But... <laughs> I have a little more time to talk to you. I'm very sorry, but but no I mean it's been a wonderful conversation, and b 
by the way, just referring back to your point, I just want to read this passage in your book. Our colleges are overrun with attempts to obscure the difference between the value of the exercise of the love of learning and things that are valuable for different reasons. Hence, our think tanks and special degrees for thinking as entrepreneurship, thinking as fighting for justice. Uh, making money is useful and fighting for justice is necessary, but neither is valuable in the same way that exercising the love of learning is valuable. So I guess it really goes back to the point that you, you have to seek out and recognize and be confident about the inherent value of humanities, of intellectual engagement, and rather treating them as a means to an end and convincing students in that way. So th that, that is uh, wonderfully put, so. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, I, I think another passage that I, I think um, um, made me think a little bit was that you, you wrote that professional academics are the natural stewards of the activities focused on books and ideas, and many academics these days find themselves discouraged and restless as I was. I'm convinced that the ailment is largely a matter of fact and with it a failure of imagination. And I want to ask you a little bit more about this idea of failure of imagination because uh, we, uh, students spend you know, more than a decade in schools. I mean, from, from pre-K to um, college. And by the time they leave college, most students hate school. They say, I don't wanna do more school anymore. I don't want to go to academia. That sounds so dreadful. I want to be in the real world, whatever the, the, that world may be. People always say this, the real world. Whereas it's, it's, I think academia is just a different kind of real world. It's just as real as any world. But why has academia failed to fundamentally inspire students' passion and imagination for what the life of being an academic, a career academic would be? I mean, such that so few students feel the urge or desire to become a career researcher or academic or, or I aspire to become one of my professors. Very few students say that these days, whereas everybody wants to be a McKinsey consultant, even though they have no idea what that job actually may look like. I, I don't know. I, I, I guess it's, it's just the failure of imagination, perhaps. Well, part of it, I think it's, that's a great, another great question. Uh, so whether you read the book or not, it, it, you're asking great questions. The, um, <laughs> I just had to keep teasing. The, um, the, I think part of it goes back to what we were just talking about um, as far as what's distinctive about a university. What can a university distinctively offer that other institutions can't offer? So if, if the university is constantly billing itself as the place where you go to make money or the place where you go to fight for justice, then it doesn't have any appeal on its own. It's, if it's just a means to an end, then it's not cultivating any ends apart from the ones that are outside of it. So there's really no reason to stay. To stay, because if what you care about is making money, you should go make some money. And if what you care about is fighting for justice, then please, you know, go fight for justice. Don't don't necessarily limit that to an academic department. So I think that uh, that's a lot of it, is that we haven't, we've lost touch with the distinctive goods that a university can produce. Um, and so we've lost touch with a distinctive culture of the university, the college and university, which you can get in, back in touch with if you're, if you're young, you know, read old novels or uh, old films and you see this world, academic world, which is different from the rest of the world, which has its own uh, kind of values and its own, uh, I don't know how to put it. And 
if you have that kind of distinctiveness, then some young people will be attracted to it. Not all of them, but that's fine. You don't need everyone to be academic after all. There's no failure in not being an academic. Uh, but you, you do, you need to, uh, you need to live that kind of life in a full robust way in, that's in touch with the things that are really valuable about it. You need to do that with some honesty. And you know what else? I think honestly, it's, it's, it's freedom you know, that in a way is missing. And that's kind of a big picture word that I used to avoid using for that reason. But, um, you know, who's, who's exercising creativity? Who's being imaginative? Who's opening up new vistas? We associate all of that with people, with people in the tech industry. Um, you know, they're the people that are thinking, rethinking medicine or rethinking uh, transit, uh, rethinking education. But in fact, traditionally, the life of the mind is the realm of that kind of freedom where you can consider any possibility. You can uh, see the world that you live in in a way that's completely different from the way it's conventionally seen. So, you know, you can, instead of seeing the world as uh, a place to make money or a place to fight for justice or whatever it is, you can see it as something completely different because of some something that you read in an old book. So I think that um, part of what the institutions have done is they've, they've uh, impinged on the freedom of academics and discouraged them from being creative, imaginative people who speak their minds, which is after all what kind of everyone wants to be in a certain way. I mean, you know, if you're willing to take the risk, you, you want to have that, that, that sense of scope. Um, and now, and it, so I, I think that's honestly what's, what's needed is, is just, just for people to get more in touch with its authentic values. Then I think, I think, I think people would love it. They'd find it very attractive. They'd, they'd want to join it. Um, but it's the, as a kind of watered down version of McKinsey or a watered down version of uh, a union or a watered down version of a, uh, an activist organization, it's, it's, why would anyone choose that? Um, I agree. Yeah. Um, it, it seems that we, everything kind of comes back to the source of the problem, which is recognizing the inherent values and mm -hmm. being more true to that. And I, I guess the last thing I want to touch on today is, um, I guess this term opinionization or the fact that I stumbled upon your book because of this article minds stoked with uh, only with opinions. Um, and it speaks about how students these days probably care a little bit more about their own opinions and facts rather than engaging with the Western canon per, per se. Um, I would love to just get your judgment or take on the current social discourse or, or, whether you call it social discourse, political discourse, or intellectual discourse, just how this kind of cultural environment is, at, at what stage it is uh, for people to, to engage. Because some people are saying, we really don't have a healthy public discourse these days, growing polarization and, and uh, fake news and all that stuff. Um, and there are people who say, we're making a lot of progress in society and, and things like that. So I don't know what your assessment would be. Well, uh, why don't I, uh, I think it's easiest for me to talk about this in terms of examples from my teaching. So, you know, it, 
Um, because college campuses, as we all know, are, are places where um, the hot button issues become explosive. They're, they're often controversies, movements, and you know this whole question about free speech in the classroom or whether the classroom ought to be a place that's safe for mem members of particular groups. Uh, and I guess what I found from experience with teaching is that we have an illusion, I think, people who, people who think that the, the discourse, as you're putting it, the capital D discourse is not healthy right now, um, they tend to think that what we need is more open conversation, open debate. We need to hear both sides of every question. Um, and uh, I think that that is uh, not actually the root of the difficulty and that the, the I, so I agree with um, those critics that, that the current discourse is bad. That is, it's not uh, serious and deep and open-ended. You know, everything feels like it's, um, it, things, a lot of activist um, programming seems like it's aiming at a kind of performance. Uh, and again, that's not necessarily uh, an attack on anyone's character because sometimes, you know, people may be earnestly trying to make the community better and may end up using tactics which end up promoting performance rather than real community. I think that's probably a lot of honestly what's happening. Because uh, I share a lot of the goals of these people. I want my classrooms, for instance, to be places where someone from any background feels respected and listened to and uh, their distinctive outlook on the world is welcomed into the conversation. Uh, but I, I suppose I don't think that there is a, a civil kind, open way of talking about things that we fiercely disagree about. That's just not gonna happen. We're not gonna have a open civil conversation about, um, you know, police killings of black people. That's, that's not gonna happen. It's too fraught. People's lives are too caught up in it on both sides. So there are people who've worked as police officers who have one perspective. There's people who uh, have had family members harassed or harmed by the police uh, who have them themselves. They're, you're not gonna be able to have a conversation. So my thought is that, and my experience in my classrooms is that what really helps people to get past this stuff, past the polarization, is open-ended inquiry on deep questions, on fundamental questions. So you go past the, the current hot button debate and you think about something that is more fundamental um, and you think about it through, say, a work of literature or a piece of philosophy um, and you connect with it at a, at a level that's more, I don't, I, I keep using the same words and I feel like I'm being vague, um, but you talk about it on a human level. Uh, and at that point, in my classrooms, people feel comfortable. So St. John's, like everywhere else, we have students with a variety of backgrounds. We have students who are activists. The classes I've seen that have gone badly have been because the conversation's superficial. It's based on opinions. It's someone being flippant about uh, some topic that they shouldn't be flippant about, like slavery or like uh, misogyny, you know, or rape, you know, ha ha ha, you know. 
uh, or they, they treat it just like an idea to be debated like any other without any emotional valence in it. Um, whereas if you're really thinking about what does it mean to be free or what does it mean to be dominated by another human being, if you're really deep into a book about it, you're not in conflict anymore because you're at a place where there's common ground to be found. Uh, and so I, I, I just think we need to be more serious uh, and, and talk about issues in the humanities that are not um, the superficial debate that everyone's talking about, um, but rather the questions that people have been thinking about for centuries which always bear on those debates in the long term, but are are much more interesting and and uh, much more rich. Uh, so I that's that's my thought. We should get serious, um, and it's it connects to what we were saying before about pandering. I think a lot of teachers now, frankly, they pander. They think these kids, they're not going to care about any of the deep stuff. What they want to know is how does this relate to the latest thing in the news. You know, how does this relate to Trump? How does this relate to Black Lives Matter? How does this relate to this? How does this relate to that? And uh, again, that's a lack of confidence that whatever your field is, there's depths in it that are going to help people to understand their current environment uh, and to see it again, freely and creatively and imaginatively, not just in the terms that are given to you in a debate. You know, are you for this or are you for this? Are you Trump or are you Biden? You know. Uh, are you Black Lives Matter? Or are you Blue Lives Matter? Uh, th these, these choices are not sufficient uh, to thinking about things. You may have to make a choice for a practical reason. You've got to vote for somebody. But they're not, they don't tell you the, the extent of the human possibilities that are in front of you. Zina, I think you're almost suggesting that we have to spend more time, I guess, with the canon, the Western canon, the whatever canon, the, the, the fundamental texts that have been distilled through, through centuries as the human wisdom. And you have to engage with that. Um, I, I want to be clear um, because I don't actually talk much directly about the Western canon. Um, that's what my background is. Uh, I think the question of what is Western and what isn't is pretty complicated, but I think there are books, which I call great books, lower G, lowercase g, great books. Um, and I think they belong to a variety of traditions. There's a, um, a tremendously old, rich East Asian tradition of books. There's an Indian tradition. Um, there's uh, what's called the Western tradition, in fact, has as both independent and intertwined uh, the Jewish tradition, which is also a Near Eastern tradition. It has the Islamic tradition, which sort of comes in and out of it. Uh, there's a Latin American tradition. There's a Black American tradition. So there, there are, and there's even national literatures. So a tradition is just some books that talk about each other. And you have those all over the world. You have literature, which has helped a particular culture find wisdom and insight. Um, and uh, I'm not a, um, I, I'm not in really interested in fighting the canon wars, you know, as to say, yes. like, the books I know are the books people ought to read. I do think a tradition is a serious thing that needs to be taken in its integrity. I don't like these 
uh, chocolate box assortments, like a little Chinese book, an Indian book, a Latin American book. You know, to me that feels patronizing and and superficial, right? Um, and given my training, I'm never going to really understand these other traditions without a little more time and depth than that. Um, but I, I do think that a really good book, a profound book, uh, and a fundamental question, um, those things I think are really what's necessary for, for our intellectual environment. I agree, Zenith. Well, I, I feel bad uh, for taking more of your time. So at the end, uh, what would be your punchline for this interview? And what would be your advice or some words that you would say to an aspiring intellectual? Uh, well, the punchline is <laughs> take on the challenge of reading an old difficult book uh, and thinking about a fundamental question. Think about your intellectual life as being a process, as being a source of growth, as being something indefinite and open-ended, not as something to achieve or a set of markers to achieve. That's the punchline. And it's also in a way my advice, uh, but I would add one thing to the advice, which is, uh, especially when you're young, you need community to support you in this kind of endeavor. So probably the most important thing I think you can do in college, you've got to find the good teachers, that's hard, takes work, um, the good classes, the good things to study, wherever you are. But you also have to find, more importantly, people your own age who you can talk to and who can be sort of fellow travelers with you on this endeavor. Because no one finds it easy just to pick up the Iliad and read it straight through. But if you've got two or three friends and you set up a schedule, you can do it and it'll be fun and interesting and you'll get a ton out of it. Um, and, you know, it'll be more fun than, say, working out together, which you probably already do, or various other, you know, doing homework together, which you probably already do, various other endeavors which you use one another to, to, to sweeten the pot and make the, make the burden lighter. So I, I think that's really important. Find people who trust your guts if you feel like the values of your community are not yours and find people who can, who can help you to figure out what those values are and, and, and ways of living them out. I, and don't, yeah, don't, don't, um, don't necessarily listen to what everyone else is telling you. Trust your guts, trust your instincts, trust your desires. Um, think for yourself. Well, Thank you so much for those wonderful words, Zena. It's been a, just an absolute pleasure talking to you. We, we would love to have you back on the show. Anytime. Any, anytime. Anytime. Any moment. Hopefully we can continue some of those important dialogues going forward. But again, to our, to our listeners, uh, that was my interview with Zena Hitz. Uh, she is a, a, a tutor or professor at St. John's College uh, in Maryland. And her newest book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. It's out since May, I think. Uh, it's just a wonderful read. Uh, again, thank you so much for joining me today, Dina. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Tiger. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only 
and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.